It's time for Legally Speaking, joined by barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, good to be here. An update on a story you and I have been following through the legal proceedings, a tragedy involving driving as well as the, well, it's, it's an S.N. Kirk sentencing. Where do we even start with this awful set of circumstances? Uh, well, there's, I think you're quite right. There's no other way to describe what happened here as a complete uh, tragedy. Uh, and, of course, whatever we do at the end of the day isn't going to uh, help the uh, young girl who was uh, so badly injured uh, in this uh, accident. Uh, but what's going on at the moment are um, submissions to the judge who's going to have to struggle with uh, the appropriate sentence to impose here. Um, and that's not easy, uh, and it is particularly not easy uh, where there's a case like this one uh, where you have a person who engaged in, uh, found to have engaged in uh, dangerous behavior, uh, which had this completely tragic uh, and uh, serious consequence. Um, and that is difficult, or one of the reasons why that's difficult from a sentencing perspective um, is that, of course, the sentence is impacted by this awful uh, outcome, right? We we just, uh, if you had somebody who was texting on their phone, speeding, and then just got lucky and got pulled over by the police, well, they're going to get a fine, right? Uh, But where you have a tragic outcome like this one, uh, the ordinary uh, result uh, would be a much more significant sentence. Usually a a jail sentence would be what would be expected. Um, uh, And that's challenging given what we're trying to do uh, when a a sentence is being imposed. Um, And the way it works is that there are a number of um, sort of principles and uh, purposes of uh, sentences uh, which are actually set out in the criminal code. Um, And there are various, uh, it's not simply an exercise of uh, vengeance and it's not simply the length of the judge's foot. Uh, They they are required to consider specific things, and they include things like denouncing unlawful uh, conduct, uh, deterring uh, both that person and people generally from engaging in similar conduct. Um, In some cases, you need to separate the person from society to keep people safe, Uh, rehabilitation of the person, right? All of these are factors that a judge would need to uh, consider when determining what sentence to impose. Um, And, in fact, there is a um, a specific provision which uh, sort of admonishes judges to use uh, restraint in imposing uh, jail sentences, uh, which is going to have some potential application uh, in this particular sentencing case. And that provision, it's uh, section 718.2E of the Criminal Code, and it says this, um, all available sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable in the circumstances and consistent with the harm done to victims or to the community should be considered for all offenders with particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. Mm. That's a big statement of principle. Yes. Um, and one of the uh, things which is going on currently in this sentencing case is that the, uh, the Crown has asked for a, a jail sentence, uh, and the defense has asked for either an uh, intermittent sentence on weekends, which could only be 90 days in length, in, in total number of days, and that may be viewed as simply an inadequate length of sentence, um, or uh, the defense has asked the judge to consider uh, imposing what's called a conditional sentence, uh, which might be referred to by many people as a house arrest provision, basically, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and the challenge the defense has in making that alternative submission of, you know, what about uh, using a conditional sentence? You know, you could put her on house arrest for two years, for example, um, is that there are the uh, sections of the criminal code that allow a judge to impose a conditional sentence um, had some restrictions added to them um, a few years ago. And the restrictions include that, include this. You can't use a conditional sentence if uh, the offense is one which, if prosecuted by indictment, the maximum term of imprisonment would be 14 years or life. And the offense of dangerous driving causing bodily harm is punishable by up to 14 years in prison. And so when you read this um, section, you'd say, well, oh, I guess you can't use a, uh, a conditional sentence. That makes that uh, unavailable. Hmm. But uh, the lawyer acting for Ms. Nykirk has indicated that he is going to challenge the constitutionality of that limitation. Hmm. Um, and there is some reason to think uh, that he may have some success in that regard because of a case that was recently decided by the Ontario Court of Appeal just mm -hmm. this year. And that Ontario Court of Appeal uh, case involved a young Aboriginal woman, Miss Sharma, uh, who was a, a mother of a young child uh, who had no record uh, and was persuaded for a modest amount of money to try to bring some drugs into Canada so she could avoid eviction and becoming homeless. That was the fact pattern. Mm -hmm. And in that case, a conditional sentence, the house arrest option, was unavailable because of that provision I just read out, the one about uh, 14 years or life, which is, would be available for bringing drugs into Canada. Yes. And the Ontario Court of Appeal, uh, referencing that other section that I read earlier about the need that there be a consideration of all other possible sanctions other than jail, where that can be appropriate, with particular attention paid to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders, because, of course, Aboriginal people are massively overrepresented in prison in Canada. Yes. The Ontario Court of Appeal found the section that limits when a conditional sentence can be used to be unconstitutional, because it prevented the use of a conditional sentence to keep that young Aboriginal woman out of jail. Interesting. Right? And when a court finds a section like that to be unconstitutional, it is unconstitutional for everyone. So the section is simply unconstitutional, at least in Ontario. How does that, that work with stare decisis and vertical stare decisis? Yeah, the way that works is that, that Ontario Court of Appeal decision would be binding on all courts in Ontario, okay. but not binding on courts in other provinces. Huh. It would be very persuasive, right? You've yeah. got, you know, this well-considered judgment from the Ontario Court of Appeal. So it might be very persuasive for the judge uh, here in Victoria, but doesn't bind him. Um, although I should say the Crown has appealed that decision to the Supreme Court of Canada. And if the Supreme Court of Canada upholds what the Ontario Court of Appeal found, then it would be applicable to everyone across the country. Um, and so what's happening at the moment is that the lawyer for Ms. Nykirk is arguing, no doubt, hey, judge, you should follow what the Ontario Court of Appeal did here, right, finding that section to be unconstitutional. And if you agree with that conclusion, you're not required to, but you may be persuaded to, if you agree with it, then a conditional sentence would at least be an available sentence. It doesn't mean that the judge would do that, but it would bring that into the realm of the possible. And so then, uh, if that was so, then the judge would need to make a decision uh, about uh, whether a conditional sentence would otherwise be an appropriate sentence here. Um, and the rub is likely to be uh, just how serious the harm was to this young girl, right? 
Um, and that'll be the weighing, and a difficult weighing, um, because, of course, when you're looking at issues like, um, you know, general deterrence, you want to deter people from in doing dangerous things like texting on their phone while speeding, yes, right? Of yes. course, we can all agree that should be discouraged. Indeed. Yeah. But really, when you think about the moral culpability of the lucky texting speeder, right? Yes. And the moral culpability of the unlucky texting speeder, right? Yes. They're the same. Hmm. Uh, it just happens yeah. to be Luck. that one person got very fortunate and didn't kill anyone or hurt anyone seriously on their drive home, whereas the other person was um, unfortunate and caused this complete tragedy. And so that's the tension with sentencings of this sort. The, the same sort of issue arises with this category of cases that are sometimes called the one-punch manslaughter cases. Yes. Where like a couple of people go out and they're having an argument and one person punches the other person, and surprisingly, you know, they stumble backwards, fall down, hit their head, and die. Yeah, and then right. there's the whole non jury or whatever the Latin is for that. Right. So, you know, what do you do with that? If it was, if the person didn't stumble back and die, it would be, you know, some modest outcome, probably, right? If somebody yes. could, you know, punch somebody in the arm and they got a bruise, you'd probably put the person on probation, or right? Yes. And there's some counseling or something, right? <laughs> But when you have to person, write an essay saying their story, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, right. correct. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you said, okay, person punched somebody outside of the bar in the arm, the person got a bruise, nothing else happened, <laughs> right? Yes. You'd probably say a person with no record is probably going to wind up with that. Maybe some counseling for anger management or, you know, do some community work and apologize, right? Yeah, that would yeah. be what you'd expect. But if you punch somebody in the arm and the person goes off balance, falls over, hits their head and dies, that person goes to prison. Yeah. And you know, really, what's the difference there, right? Yeah, we want to deter people from punching other people in the arm, and we want to deter people from texting and driving, no doubt about that. But it's really uh, hard, and maybe the answer is you need much greater sentences for the lucky arm punch or the lucky texter. But, hmm. you know, we're, we're not ordinarily going to send people off to the penitentiary or, or to jail uh, for, you know, texting on their phone and having no consequence. We just yeah. do take into account the consequence. And so... If this constitutional argument is successful, then the judge will need to struggle with the issue of whether uh, putting somebody, for example, on house arrest for two years um, would be uh, sufficient uh, in terms of the other principles of sentencing. Like, Would that be sufficient in terms of denouncing the conduct and deterring other people and deterring this person, right, and ensuring yeah. the person's rehabilitated? Would that be sufficient? Um, uh, and so... Uh, that would be, uh, I think, a harder thing to struggle with than um, if that is an available option. If it's unavailable, the judge may conclude, well, look, uh, you know, what would otherwise be available to me just wouldn't, you know, be proportionate to the actual harm that happened here. So um, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. The, the application, um, you know, does appear to have some uh, reasonable basis for it, given what the Court of Appeal has found in Ontario. And so we'll have to watch how that uh, plays out. Uh, the judge here dealing with it, uh, happily, is a very experienced. Uh, he was an experienced criminal lawyer for many years. He's yes. a judge now for a long time. He'd be a good. He's a good person to be struggling with all of this, just simply because he is going to be well versed in all of these issues. So, good. Yeah. Uh, a, a difficult case, uh, a hard one, uh, but that's the structure that uh, the judge will need to struggle with in deciding. You know, what do we do uh, with Miss uh, Miss Nykirk?
Indeed. And I know yourself and all those who participate in allowing our criminal justice system to function. I just want to say that the service that you and others do for the community is is so important because I think many people wouldn't be able to make decisions of that nature day after day after day without it weighing so heavily on them, just being involved in, in living and knowing those circumstances every day. No, indeed. And, and I must say, as counsel, you sort of, you know, you do your best and you make your submission, but it's going to be you know, somebody else has got to go back and uh, figure out, you know, what are you going to go out and decide here when yeah. you've got these really tough cases? Um, you know, it, it's perhaps not as difficult if you were dealing with somebody who, you know, intentionally causes yeah. that sort of grievous harm to somebody. We can all probably agree uh, about the appropriate right approach there, right? Yes. Uh, but when you're dealing with somebody who uh, engages in, you know, reckless conduct, right, yeah. that causes a tragedy... Um, you know, that brings all of those principles of sentencing uh, into real tension. Um, and so that's, I think, why a case like this one is just, it's so difficult uh, to balance all of those uh, competing interests. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking will continue after this break. We continue now with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Our next case, Michael, a young wife, a separation agreement, life insurance and aeroplan points. What's the fact pattern here? Yes, indeed. I must say that I think the fact pattern might uh, call to mind for some people... <laughs> Gloria and uh, Manny from Modern Family. The, uh, the, uh, here the, the plaintiff in this uh, case uh, was uh, 26 years of age when she married the uh, uh, 54-year-old. Uh, and, uh, she was from Colombia, and she had a uh, four-year-old son uh, who was uh, from a previous relationship. Uh, the, uh, the happy couple moved to, I think it was Parksville, uh, things uh, went along fine for a few years, but uh, they eventually separated in 2013. Uh, and when they separated, they entered into this separation agreement with the help of a, a mediator. Uh, and the agreement provided that uh, the uh, ex-husband would uh, pay to uh, his ex-wife um, spousal support for several years in the amount of $5,500 per month, um, and then would also pay child support for the uh, child who was that by uh, was a child of the marriage as a result of uh, having uh, this couple having married mm-hmm. of amount of $1,667 per month. The support agreement uh, also included, or the separation agreement also included a requirement that the husband or ex-husband uh, purchase life insurance payable to the uh, ex-wife uh, in the amount of $250,000. Uh, and to uh, keep that in place while he still had this obligation to pay child and spousal support. Well, you can probably imagine what happened. Uh, he, he did buy the insurance, uh, but then he changed the beneficiary uh, from the, uh, his ex-wife to his adult children, uh, and then he promptly died. Oh. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> tragic for him, uh, but uh, this case was then brought by his, his ex-wife, um, saying that uh, the um, the life insurance proceeds, the $250,000, should be paid to her um, rather than uh, his adult children or the estate. The uh, adult children uh, took the position that uh, the $250,000 exceeded uh, the amount of money that was remaining payable by way of uh, spousal and child support at the time uh, of their father's death. Uh, and so uh, only gave her 78, I think, 78 or $79,000, and hence the lawsuit. 
Um, the lawsuit also made a claim for aeroplan points because the separation agreement provided that the ex-husband would make available to his ex-wife 150,000 aeroplan points for each of several years as long as she paid the tax on any bookings. Wow. <laughs> and so uh, the judge had to wrestle with, well, what do we do with all this? Uh, ultimately, the judge concluded that with respect to the life insurance proceeds, uh, even though the amount of money the ex-wife would receive uh, pursuant to the life insurance policy was much greater than the amount of um, spousal and child support that remained payable before the agreement would have expired. Nonetheless, it was a clear term of the agreement uh, that this be done, uh, and as a result, um, she has been uh, awarded uh, that amount of money to be paid out of, uh, out of the estate. That then brought the judge to the aeroplan points. <laughs> uh, and the uh, judge concluded that the agreement simply provided that the ex-husband would make available to the complainant 150,000 aeroplan points per year, hmm. and that there was no evidence that she actually asked him to book anything using the aeroplan points during that period of time, hmm. that the agreement didn't actually provide that she was to be transferred the aeroplan points, and moreover, uh, the uh, plaintiff didn't lead any evidence upon which the judge could rely to value these aeroplan points as worth anything. And so the net result is she'll get the insurance proceeds, but not the aeroplan points. And I must say I smiled as a user of aeroplan points, uh, reading this thing over in terms of uh, essentially it uh, seems to amount to a conclusion uh, and some authority for the proposition that without evidence, uh, presumptively, your old plan points aren't worth anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're suing somebody to <laughs> your old plan, plan points, points <laughs> you better leave some evidence that they're actually worth something, uh, lest you be faced with this particular decision from the BC Supreme Court, which, of course, would be binding on other judges in BC. And persuasive to judges elsewhere. Correct. You may find judges elsewhere saying it's very persuasive. I'm not sure those points are worth anything. You better call some evidence. Um, with COVID-19, as always, part of our public discourse and politicians increasingly grappling with infection numbers that are larger than would otherwise be desired. COVID-19 ministerial orders again at issue. And we do have a case uh, that relates to that, don't we? We've got three and a half minutes. Indeed we do. Probably we can sum it up in that time. So it's a local case. It involved a uh, local Chinese restaurant and a local contractor. Uh, the contractor said that they did some work for the Chinese restaurant uh, and they claimed that they weren't paid for the work. And so they filed a, um, a builder's lien, which is something that a contractor can do if they're not, if they say they weren't paid for work. But there's a requirement in the Builder's Lien Act that you then follow up within one year uh, and file a notice uh, of uh, a certificate of pending litigation to then sort of go on and have the thing sorted out in court. Mm -hmm. Well, the issue arose here uh, is that the uh, one year had expired but for the operation of one of these emergency orders that was made uh, back in March. There was an emergency order issued, Ministerial Order M086, that said every mandatory limitation period and other mandatory time periods established in an enactment or law of British Columbia within the civil or family action proceedings, claims, or appeal may be commenced in the Provincial Court, Supreme Court, or the Court of Appeal is suspended. <laughs> and so there was a suspension of limitation periods issued. Uh, that order was signed on March 26th. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then what happened is when that one expired, there was a new ministerial order, Ministerial Order 098, which said uh, there will be a continued suspension of limitation periods, but the suspension does not apply to the Builders Lean Act. Oh. And so the argument, because that, the, the time this thing was filed, was, would be affected by virtue of whether the first one was operational or the second one. And mm. the argument made by the, um, the restaurant was, well, hey, look, the second order says that the first order was cancelled and replaced by this one, and the new one says that it doesn't apply to the Builders' Lean Act. Therefore, they argued, there was no suspension of the running of time, and therefore the contractor was out of time. That was the argument. Uh, that did not succeed. Uh, the uh, master on that application found that uh, even though the first order, which did apply to the Builders' Lean Act, was replaced by the new order, it was still effective at the time that it existed. Uh, and therefore, the, um, the contractor was still within time to file the required certificate of pending litigation so they could carry on with their uh, claim for what they say was not being paid for some work. So... Um, that's sort of the particular outcome in that case, but I think it shows you how uh, many of these things are likely to be complicated going forward. We're, we're likely to have a, uh, a long tail of potential legal issues that arise from things uh, like this, interpreting, you know, what do these emergency orders actually mean and what was their effect? Um, and, of course, when all of these things were put in place, it was, uh, you know, beginning to middle of March, you can imagine, you know, there was quite a bit of urgency <laughs> to... Uh, getting these things in place, uh, and I, I suspect we will see over the next few years various other cases like this one interpreting what do they in fact actually mean, uh, because they will they uh, potentially have an effect on all kinds of uh, issues and circumstances, some of which may just not have been foreseen uh, when the orders were created. Michael Mulligan, every Thursday during the second half of our second hour here on CFAX 1070. Legally speaking, we appreciate your time as always. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. All right, you too. We'll talk to you next week. Bye now.